Have you ever wondered whether the problems in the world today would exist if we had deeper connection to ourselves, others and the environment and acted from that place? Welcome to the Conscious Action Podcast with your hosts Brian Burnerman and Kayla Grimble, who believe that connection is the key to taking conscious action as individuals and creating a better world. We are here to raise awareness and inspire meaningful action by sharing stories, knowledge and conversations with thought leaders and change makers. From sustainability to well-being and everything related to conscious living, our mission is to empower you to be the change that you want to see in the world. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Conscious Action Podcast. I am Brian Burneman, your host. And for this episode, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Rebecca Handley. And we're going to get to know her a little bit uh, and what she's doing and why I wanted to have a conversation with Rebecca now. But before we do that, for those of you that don't know you, um, would you be able to please introduce yourself to our audience? <laughs> uh, well, the short version of me is that I'm a researcher. I write books and I have three beautiful children and I live in the inner west of Sydney in Australia. Nice, wonderful. And first of all, thank you for taking the time to, to be here with us and, and to, to share a little bit of, of what you do. And I'm super interested, before we get into the main topic that I wanted to, to talk about, what has been your journey in terms of researcher and, and understanding, like, how do you match what you care about with your work? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. I think I was really lucky to grow up at a time in Australia where, look, you could still, you could still, if you, especially if you had family support and a little bit of family money, you could still pursue the things that interested you in your education without worrying too much about a massive education debt. So I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where my father was an academic, my mother was a teacher, they were reasonably well off and they valued education. So I, I went to, you know, I really enjoyed school and I went to university to just pursue the things I was interested in um, intellectually, in my law degree, my arts degree and in my PhD without much focus on whether it would earn me any money, which was probably which was either a nice mixture of kind of naivete and hubris probably. <laughs> and then um and then I just thought that I would continue to try and do that in my career. Mm-hmm. And so there was always a mixture of the things that intellectually interested me and and broadly that was people and politics and how people how politics, big capital P party politics, but also just general politics and people combined Mm -hmm. and then I just thought that's what interested me how can I kind of earn a living that's Mm -hmm. not a very good living but (laughs) but a good enough living and I've I've been both lucky and privileged to be able to continue to do that I do wonder even with my parental support if I was going into university today at a time of COVID, at a time when universities are being basically underfunded by the by by um, you know by governments, whether I'd be able to have the you know have the almost the luxury of being able to do that. Mm. So I mean, I was I've always been considered myself on the kind of 
centre left. I was always somewhere between. I was always somewhere between a Labor. You know, a, I was a Labor voter with perhaps a Greens kind of mentality, but Greens in terms of more identity politics, feminism to some extent, racism was something that that I focused on. And it was only really later on in life that environmentalism really focused, really was important to me. Mm. And so I've kind of, the other thing I've done, I've got to say, is that I have avoided, and again, through luck, privilege or whatever, I've avoided having a full-time job for a long period of time. (laughs) I've tended to always have lots and lots of part-time jobs and casual jobs. Mm. I found that easy to manage. A lot of people really thrive within organisations. And I've and I've never. It, it's not something that suits me. I love working with people. I don't like working for people, and I don't like people working for me. So that's a little bit of a temperament thing. Yeah. So I have been managed to have the real luxury of creating a career that earns me a crust and puts a you know uh, a roof over the heads of my three kids, and still do things that interest me that I think are socially useful. I suppose, but the issue for the kinds of questions that, the kinds of things that, that matter to me, which is broadly under the banner of social justice, but increasingly now environmental justice and climate action. Mm, yes. It's, it's so interesting, you know, that you're sharing this because I was blessed enough to as well be born into a family that my parents supported what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, both, like from a financial standpoint, allowing me to go and say what I wanted, but also really supporting me and enabling me to to follow what I wanted to do and not what they were expecting me or what society was expecting of me, yeah. and and being able to to do that and to do that as well as a career. Like I work for myself um, yeah. as well. Like I, I do what I want uh, and. I'm able to live off of being and doing what I what I want to be doing, which I think that it's not that common. Uh, it's not. No, it's, it isn't that common. And I think the thing is, is when you can, when you have managed through luck, privilege, hard work, whatever it is, whatever that, com- and it's a head, it's a combination of all those things to be able to do the things that you enjoy and be your own boss personally, I feel you have a moral obligation to make sure that your labour <laughs> um, is directed towards a movement that benefits people who don't have the luxury and privilege to be able to do what interests them for money because that is the vast majority of people um, um, for a whole range of reasons. So, yeah, so you ne- never, ever lose sight of a kind of deep gratitude that you're able to do the work and a higher obligation that, you know, that that is not available to anyone, everyone. And, in fact, it's not available to the vast majority of people. Yeah, and, and I would love to, to explore a little bit more on this topic that is, uh, as you were saying, uh, that social justice and environmental justice, which for me they are kind of like intricately uh, the same. Yes. Um, how, how would you um, explore for yourself and how do you try to communicate what are the injustices? Because I, I feel a lot of times, and this uh, as perhaps as a student to, to, your, to your viewpoint, I see a lot of times 
a lot of people that because of their own conditioning and it's not about pointing fingers mm -hmm. or anything they are they have their own issues and sometimes they don't realize the privilege that they already have uh and that there's a lot of people that are because of whatever reason and whatever beliefs we have they were born into a situation that is not good at all from like here an earthly perspective um what what do you do you see in this space in terms of being able to to empathize and to see what actually is happening and then to communicate it yeah well i think Empathy is a really good word to use there, a really critical word. Before you can even give people advice about how to communicate, you have to give people permission, uh, not just permission, but you have to encourage them to be, to listen. Um, so uh, to go back to, so when I first started my research career, I was involved in a project called Mind and Mood, which is like a, you know, a bit, almost like ethnography. So it was qualitative research, so what you and your listeners would understand as focus groups. Mm -hmm. But instead of kind of getting all these people in a room and asking them a whole lot of questions, myself and my team would travel Australia and sit in people's living rooms and places where they worked and cafes and public parks and all the rest of it. And it was, a, it was based on a listening method amongst people who trusted each other. And so to really deeply understand why different kinds of people feel the way they do and people who you may not necessarily meet or encounter if you just went about your normal life required a really a, a suspension of judgment, if only for a short period of time, and deep listening and really understanding why people were coming from the way they were. And then, then after that listening, a period of critical engagement with their beliefs, which is not the same as saying, oh, well, everybody has their own point of view. Because as we see in, in America right now, the end point of that is really problematic. This kind of idea that, oh, well, you know, that's just how they see the world. I mean, Donald Trump and the people around him see the world in a way that is not, that is, you know, deeply destructive to everybody around them. This is not just a difference of opinion. This is a completely different way of interacting in the, with the world and you can't excuse that. But as well as that kind of deep listening, genuine attempt to understand where people are coming from without reference to your own worldview, at least to start with, then a period of critical engagement with those views What are the legitimate things that, for example, that might be driving things like the idea that we might stop boat people from coming to Australia, right, that we might stop refugees from coming to Australia? What is it that's driving that view in the Australian community? It's a mixture of unjustified fear, racism, but also social and economic anxiety that you can't necessarily, you know, just disregard. So, So that listening period is important, that critical engagement period is important, and then a really clear understanding of what is it that what is it that you want the person or people you are communicating with to feel and what do you want to get them to do? And does it require them to completely agree with your position or do you what like to what extent? Do you have to establish a consensus or a meeting of minds to get people to do things? And I suppose climate change is a really good example about that. Mm -hmm. 
In New Zealand, as in Australia, there's a diversity of views on climate change. You know, the majority of people believe it's happening. But different people have very different views about what's driving it and what needs to be done to solve it. Mm. So one of the things that's really difficult, particularly for people from the progressive left, who are getting better at it, is that we don't need people to sign up to our full political ideological agenda to get them to act on climate change. And, in fact, the challenge is to get different groups of people to agree enough for the solutions we know are going to benefit everybody. And that's the challenge. I make it sound easy. It's very difficult. Um, but, but to get to that point, to get to that point where you understand what it is that's going to move the majority of people requires a really a kind of quite a humble, open, non-judgmental start which is not the same as not being critical, which is not the same as accepting other people's points of view as your own or thinking that there is, they're, they're equally valid. It's, mm. a, it's a listening process that I still, for, even now after all these years, 15 years of listening to Australians, I still find that so important, so much so that there's been times, particularly when I've had my, gone on maternity leave for my children, mm. that I've become an unbearable re, um, restaurant guests because all I want to do is listen listen to what other people at the restaurant are saying Mm. because I miss hearing what people have to say, particularly people, less surveys, lots of surveys around with percentages of people, but much more eavesdropping on people's conversations, which probably makes me a bit of a... A bit of bit a bit creepy perhaps some people, but it's really enriched my understanding of humanity made me the kind of researcher I am and I've taken so many of those lessons into my professional and my personal life over the years. Yes. Mm, so interesting. I, I would, it would be so interesting to, to see that in action, like just <laughs> to listen in a conversation, which, I mean, I think that a lot of people already do that without any no, that's exactly- principle in mind. So. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's one of the reasons why, well, not during COVID much, but I love public transport. Mm. I love chatting to people. I like listening to what people have to say. Um, and, you know, the nature of those conversations can be very different than the chat on social media, which is always very much constructed by whatever social media platform you're on at the moment. There's so mm. much much more of a performance of self, whether you're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've had some, um, you know, I've, I've had some amazing moments of clarity, understanding, um, mm you know, in the work that I've done where people have just been generous enough to open up about their lives and um, an enormous amount of wisdom and quite a few funny stories as well. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And I want to to get into, uh, I mean, did your research led you to your book uh, that it's called, for those of you that haven't actually read or actually heard of the book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. Um, what led you to, to actually write that book? Well, it's, it's a really interesting point because it really, it wasn't my research and my professional life per se. I mean, I'd spent 15 years doing a whole range of bits of social research on a whole range of issues and unsurprisingly climate and environment came up on and off throughout that time. And I had done some work around it and I'd thought about it, but very much from the point of, from a kind of 
dispassionate, important, you know, necessary, dispassionate point of view, like what do people think? And, and of course, given I'm, I'm, you know, a left of centre kind of person and given I'm, you know, given the, the nature of my political views and my social position, climate change, I believed in climate change, I believed that government should do things about it, um, but I really wasn't, it, what, what's clear now is it wasn't a, a philosophical, emotional, ethical, whatever you might want to call it, positioning for me. It was very much an intellectual, political one. Mm. And then, um, you know, I have three daughters and, you know, like any parent, very focused on, you know, do you brush it, do they brush their teeth, do they do their maths homework, you know, like are they, you know, eating well and exercising and, um, you know, one morning I was watching on really early one morning I was watching the um, students' strike for climate, I think the second one that was a bit more in, in Australia that was a bit more substantial. Mm. and. I felt I, I, I and I can only explain this as a as a deep emotional response rather than an intellectual response. Mm. I felt an enormous sense of responsibility as if those young people who are not much older than my daughter, who I'm this photo I'm looking at right now, um, say basically they were saying, We don't have the power, but we will inherit the world that you are ruining. Do something. Yeah. And, and I'm not alone in being somebody who felt that that was an important um, moral challenge that they put in front of us, like an important, you know, cry for help. Mm. You know, the, the, the frustration, the anger, the fear was quite palpable. And I thought, well, you know, the extent to which I can direct my labour and skills towards solving this problem Interesting, not just for my daughters, but for me. I mean, so much of climate impacts are happening now and will continue to get worse in the next 20 years. So this, this moment predated the fires and mm. I wrote the book during the fires. Oh, wow. But potentially the fires might have triggered a very similar response for me, which is not an intellectual response but a, a moral ethical response. Yeah. Now, I mean, <laughs> I write about it in the book. I don't think everybody has to go through that process to support climate action, to think that, yep, we should go to renewable energy or even to really think about those questions when they vote. But it's clear that quite a big section of the Australian population have gone through that. You know, when we look at the data, it shows about a quarter of Australians are alarmed. So absolutely believe climate action is happening, climate effects are happening now, serious threat, and they think about that a lot. And more and more over time, people will tip from being kind of intellectually concerned about climate to being quite personally concerned. And what that tipping point is, the thing that trans that that um, turns you from kind of concerned about climate change and a believer, but and to somebody who thinks, no, 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 this is urgent, and I need to use my labour and skills to help be part of a collective solution to this problem. Hmm. That is almost inevitably a personal um, journey that you go on rather than an intellectual one. Yeah. So, um, and it really was, it turned, it really did turn my professional and personal life upside down. Um, but there was really no other choice in a sense for me because the only way I manage my anxiety about climate change is to be involved, is yeah. to be actively involved, collaborating, work, doing a podcast like this in the hope that, 
some of your audience who I know are already really interested in this might find some insight or, um, uh, you know, some comfort or some tips about how to talk to people on climate change, you know. So that's, that's kind of what happened and, you know, that was maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, and now my whole... My whole um, professional life is around climate change and supporting climate um, solutions across the board from really, really big energy providers to little tiny community groups of, you know, six or seven people who meet in the pub every, you know, once a month to talk about climate change. So it's it's immensely enjoyable work and, I'm, again, feel very lucky and privileged to do it. That's so interesting because, I mean... I'm what you mentioned, so many things that resonate with me because mm -hmm. one thing for me is a, that personal responsibility and, yes. and we're all going to have a different sense of what that means and also we're all in a different position yeah. but we need to take action. This is a little bit why yes. conscious action. We need to learn and it's so important that, of course, the science is important but yep. we need to be moved, as you mentioned. Exactly. To act. We exactly. need to have that. And, and a lot of times in, in the workshops that I do around this topic and how to reduce our footprint, I, mm. I ask everyone for the, like, the first quarter of, of the workshop. It's all about why do they care and getting, yeah. getting that into really understanding, you know, like mm. I'm, Unless I really, really care, I'm not going to change the, my ways because I'm used to my ways. So yeah. changing our behavior is not that easy if I don't have that drive. And, and with a topic like this, sometimes um, it can be quite overwhelming. And this is, this is why I think that the conversations that can bring it back to a place where we can have a conversation and start yeah. talking about it and start taking some steps. And, and with, with saying that, would you be able to, to share some, what are some of the ways that for those that have in their life someone that either doesn't believe on climate change or isn't doing anything, yeah. where are some starting points? Yeah. Look, it's a really good point. I suppose that... I suppose the first, there are some general principles, but I first I suppose the first question you always have to ask yourself is, you know, is to understand who you are talking to. So if, if the person you want to engage on climate change is a relative you're going to talk to about it over Christmas dinner, then your approach will be a bit different than if it's, let's say, a local council, like maybe it's somebody in local government that you want to go to and say, you know, we want you to improve your recycling program or whatever. So they're going to have very different, they may feel and think the same about climate change, but they have different, it, there's a context around them that's very different. A lot of the book is, is more of a helping people have these conversations in daily life and understand their own emotional response to climate change as well as the emotional response around them. That being said, some of this stuff can be taken into how you might talk to your employer or how you might talk to somebody in government or some a decision maker. But we'll leave that aside because there are certain kind of institutional, you know, and procedural things we have to think about with that. But let's say it's somebody that you know who 
and you think about how to approach climate change with them. And it's the first thing to acknowledge is it's really hard to raise this issue. You know, there used to be a, a saying that you never talk about sex and religion at the dinner table. Well, I kind of feel that you can almost do that now, mm. but you can't talk about climate change because you can eat sex or religion or politics. It's like climate change is even worse than politics because for most people, and the research shows this, is they think climate change is like a, is, is, they think climate change is mired in the kind of toxic politics of social media where you've got deniers on one hand yelling at greenies on the other and abusing each other and all the rest of it. And they also feel for a whole range of reasons that the science isn't settled. So they feel doubly two, they feel two things when they think about climate change. The first thing they feel is inadequate that they don't understand the science, you know, and secondly, feeling like if they raise it, it's going to raise a whole lot of toxic, nasty personal politics. And who wants that, right? Who wants to feel both ignorant of something like science and capable of triggering a fight? So I think the very first thing to recognise is this is probably one of the hardest things that you can talk about. Yes. I suppose the next step I always say and what I, what I try and employ in the work that I do is I try and understand, again, I drive that listening method, which is, you know, it might be, oh, aren't these fires terrible? Yeah, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think's causing them? Like, why do you think it's happening? And really listen and often say, well, you know, they're saying that it might have something to do with climate change. What do you think about that? And part of what I'm trying to do in those open questions is get to not only how they feel about climate change, but how climate change makes them feel. So is it that part of the reason why they don't want to engage with the issue is it's they feel powerless to do anything about it? They feel disengaged from politics. All they see is in Australia in particular, you're a bit lucky in New Zealand, but Australia in particular, politicians finding it incapable of talking about it in a, in a particularly our federal politicians in an effective way. Yeah. So you really want to understand what is it about the climate change issue that upsets them and what is it about the about talking about climate change that turns them off? Mm. And it can often be that they feel, yeah, they can feel inadequate that they don't understand the science. Or it can be that they feel like any projections about what might happen in 20 or 30 years' time, and a lot of climate science and a lot of climate writing talks about, you know, rivers of fire and you know, animals, you know, all the animals are dead. And you know, it talks about an apocalyptic view of the future, mm. which is very hard for people to engage with and can be very demotivating. So what I really want is to, again, again to elicit and understand and validate even if it's not true and then try and keep that conversation going. And this is where and this is why I think you spending as much time as you do in your workshops, getting people to really understand why they care about the issue. I think that anybody who wants to talk about, anybody who wants to communicate about climate change needs to understand their own climate story. So what is it that drove them? not because they expect everybody else to feel that way, would be really, you know, borderline offensive for me to say to other parents, oh, well, if you mustn't care about your kids if you don't care about climate change because it was the love of my kids and my kids' generation that took me to climate change, but I don't judge other parents. Yeah. I don't expect them to have the same experience that I do and I don't judge the love of their children based on that. Yeah. But I do talk about my own climate story and then I also talk about my enthusiasm, my genuine enthusiasm, that many of the solutions to climate change are available to us now. 
and they're not pie-in-the-sky stuff, you know, renewable energy is, the more I find out about what we can do with it, the more excited I get. The more excited I get when communities come together to establish a microgrid that's giving everybody cheaper electricity and, you know, creating jobs or scientists that work out how we can use a readily available seaweed and put it in feed for cows to make, you know, a steak, you know, low emissions, you know, low emissions meat. Like, you know, there is just so many, there's just a few of the things that you find out. So I talk about why climate change matters to me to make it really personal and to ground it in my experience. And then I talk about my enthusiasm for the solution. So what is possible? But probably the most important thing is to realise that that you're is not to expect an aha moment from somebody or like a moment where you just kind of move them. If that happens, wow, isn't that great? And I've been lucky enough to get a few emails off the back of the book where somebody has felt that from reading the book. But really these are processes that take long periods of time and if you can open up a conversation with somebody with no clear resolution but kind of gets them thinking, you never know how that might push them along a path one way or the other. So you can't be too focused on getting a quick result. Merely getting people to talk and opening up and having an exchange that doesn't end awkwardly or... (laughs) <laughs> descend into kind of, you know, yeah. uh, finger pointing, is itself actually a little bit of a win. It's actually a little bit of a victory. And so, and the more you do it, the more you work out and the more you kind of really are open to that conversation, the better it is. Mm, yeah. But being in touch, so like Sorry. I said with your workshops, really being in touch about your own climate story, your own climate journey mm. and finding non uh, really genuine authentic but non-judgmental ways to open up it's not like well i care about my children and i you know and that's why i like climate change you know that's why i'm kind of you know focused on climate change that's not going to work that would be my very i mean i know that doesn't sound like a 10-step program to change in somebody's mind but i don't think that exists certainly not on this kind of topic and everything like from my perspective it's about as you say that conversation and that listening aspect and understanding that we are all different. We are all in our own journeys. We all have a different story and a different understanding. And um, and for me, this is one of the keys, like as you were saying, like being compassionate towards others and where they are, because yes, for you, it's your kids that was one of the reasons why you put your attention into it. But for other people, it might be different things. And one of the things that I was interested about, especially in, like, in Australia, that I, I, of course, don't know that much. I know here uh, in New Zealand, I'm from a little bit from what I know because I have lived in different places and I have been living here in New Zealand now for almost six years. Um, the conversation is a very different conversation for someone like me than someone from the Pacific Islands. Yes. They are having everything actually happening right now or from the Aboriginal people. Absolutely. What is the experience, especially with the Aboriginal people in Australia? Yeah, and look, I, I I would be the last person to feel like they had the right to tell those stories. There's there's some of the most 
um, powerful storytelling and political activism around climate is being done by First Nations people in Australia. I'd encourage listeners to um, to find out online about what's happening to the Torres Strait and um, there's lots of really terrific books, you know, now slowly coming out where um, First Nations Australians are talking about their relationship with their land, their understanding, the urgency of climate action, the impact it's having on not just coastal communities but on um, water, you know, water security and inland communities and all the rest of it. But um, And look, one of the very, very few good outcomes of the fires was a, a broader understanding and appreciation in the Australian community that Indigenous communities had been managing fires and managing land pretty effectively for a long time and that that um, continuous knowledge would be really helpful um, ongoing for us. So there's... But, you know, for me, what was um, really important and, and talking to activists in the Pacific Islands and talking to um, Indigenous activists as part of researching the book is, um, you know, they don't necessarily need, they don't feel like they need, you know, a degree in science or necessarily a whole lot of political um, power to do things about this and to remain active. And it and or to have people convince them not just that this is happening, but that it's happening right now. And so I learned a lot listening to them about how they manage um, not just their fear, but their genuine sense of anger and injustice as they move forward. Um, they do that on top of managing broader anger and injustice related related to you know continuing racism and colonization i mean that's a that's a heady mix of things to have to manage but they yeah. still manage to continue to move forward and do that work and provide that leadership mm. um and i was lucky enough when i did last year i did the climate reality training with al gore and about 800 other people from across australia and the pacific in uh, in Brisbane in June of last year, and there were many representatives, not just from the Pacific Island, but from the Torres Strait. He spoke, you know, again, all of that stuff I was talking about, very directly, very clearly, their own climate story and the climate story of their community, and it was, you know, really very moving. And um, they kind of the leadership of those communities, particularly in the Pacific Islands at the national level, kind of puts the Australian government to shame. <laughs> um, and uh, I hope that uh, I hope that we can do more um, um, about that very soon because we are letting them down and they're um, pretty important, um, you know, uh, regional allies and we've let them down in relation to climate change, there's no doubt. Mm, definitely. And... Before I get into the last few questions, I wanted to to have your um, opinion or your view on how has the conversation that you've been having with this topic changed since COVID hit? Ah, okay, yeah. Um, look, I was very worried when COVID hit that um, not only would climate kind of fall off the agenda because of the nature of, you know, because the all-encompassing nature of the pandemic, but also because there was going to be an inevitable and has been an inevitable economic downturn. Mm. I was also really worried too that um, because I knew, you know, it was very clear people were going to stop flying and people were going to drive less and there was going to be, you know what I mean, that, that yeah. there was going to be some kind of 
demonstrable um, environmental, imp positive environmental impact that people would associate with negative things like lockdown, mental illness, um, all the kinds of things that we've seen happen in COVID. In Australia, and I, I, my, my caveat here is that Australia, like with New Zealand, we haven't seen anything like the infection rates, the death rates, the, the, the social dislocation and disruption, and potentially also the economic downturns that you've seen in other countries. That being said, all of the research that I've engaged with seen shows that there is still an appetite for, in the community more broadly, for action on the broader thing, broader problems that face our society, and an appetite to see whether thing, whether dealing with those issues even quicker than we were doing before might help us out of the out of the uh, the particularly the economic downturn. So for a lot of people, they were saying, "Look, we know we have to go towards renewable energy. If further investment in renewable energy is going to help us get out of the economic doldrums, then let's do it." So there was, I think, a lot more nuanced, more, more um, approach to this from the community, judging by the research, than kind of a black and white, like, oh, there's a pandemic now, we can't think about climate change. So that's really good. And, and I think a, as a result, we've now seen, and it's very exciting in Australia, we've now seen significant commitments this year from all state and territory governments to investment in renewables. In Tasmania, which is one of our states, they've made a commitment to 200% renewables by 2025. We've had a, one of our biggest retailers in Australia, Woolworths, make a significant commitment to zero emissions by 2030. So we've continued to see all these governments, local governments, big corporates, you know, financial institutions make some of these commitments, as well as some of our more significant trading partners, Japan, um, for example, making those commitments as well. And now with the Biden presidency, <laughs> which is, you know, <laughs> I know some people don't want to accept it, we're also seeing that kind of strong rhetoric around mm. the, the nexus between climate solutions and jobs. So, you know, we can, we not only can we walk and chew gum at the same time, we have to. And there is a broad understanding and recognition of that. So that is great. Yeah. One of the few good news stories of 2020, I've got to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, like for me, this has been a super interesting year with all of its challenges, uh, but as well with all of the opportunities and being able to to walk that um, fine line between both things, not being like, not disregarding the challenges and only focusing on the opportunities, but being realistic at the same time. Absolutely. So it's right. been really interesting and. Just the last few questions. Um, what is one resource that you would recommend other people in terms of either a documentary or a website or a podcast or something yeah. that you want to learn more about all of this? Look, I, did, I put a whole lot of resources at the end of the book, so if people want to kind of um, flick through that. I think for me, if you're kind of more on an academic bent, um, Yale University has something called the... Um, uh, they have a climate change program that does a whole lot of uh, really easily accessible research on how people feel about climate. They've got a fantastic podcast as well that are, um, is really worth listening to. Um, there was a really great uh, documentary made by a guy called Damon Gamow um, called 2040. And one of the reasons I really like that documentary is um, 
you know, he's quirky and, he, again, it's, it, it appeals to me because it's very much about his daughter and what kind of world he wants his daughter to inherit. But the thing I really like about it is that the solutions he looks at are the ones that are available to us now. So, yeah. so much, so much climate um, programming is either all the very, very scientific or very, all these terrible things are going to happen, or we're, we're going to solve them with all these possible things that might happen in the future. Mm. I think the other thing that that documentary shows and the most powerful thing that, that came out of that for me was all the microgrids across parts of um, Asia. And I thought these are, you know, poor communities by Australian standards, but when it comes to things like creative approaches to energy generation, they're actually doing better than us. Like mm. that we should be... You know, so when people say, oh, well, look, you know, it's only affluent countries that can afford to do this and emerging country, you know, emer- you know, poorer countries need fossil fuels. There's no evidence that that's the case, actually. Yeah. One of the countries that is doing best with renewable energy globally is Costa Rica. And there's plenty of countries in Africa that have done some incredible things around renewables as well. So it's possible. Yeah. So... Um, engaging visualisation around the possible is what we need to look at. I think it's a really good example. So there's just two, but there are, look, and your podcast include, there are so many interesting podcasts and, and taking a different approach to climate as well, um, uh, I think is worth, you know, trying to find your niche and the thing that really, you know, um, and trying to find your niche and the thing, the really approach that appeals to you, I think is, is the task. There's so much material out there. Yes, definitely. It's such a good documentary. I really, I really recommend it as well. And perhaps you have already answered this uh, during the episode, but what is your one go-to tip? If you need to share only one tip with someone around this topic, what is that one tip? My one tip is to avoid at all costs triggering a sense of shame in the other person you are talking to. Mm. Now, of all the emotions that I explore in the book, I think the shame is probably the worst. Guilt that leads to a sense of responsibility and some empowerment about action can be useful. Mm. But shame, making somebody feel bad about themselves because of the way they think, you're never, you're almost never, ever going to get over that. I mean, when you look back at your own life and you you remember those moments of shame, right, mm-hmm. you just, there's something so deep about what it feels to be shameful and the impulse is to run away from the thing that makes you feel that way. Right? It's such a, so avoid at all costs the sense of, making somebody feel bad about themselves as a person when you talk about climate change. And there are so many ways to get around that. Um, And, and that would be my, that would be my, my one thing to avoid. And everything else is about a creative understanding of where, of who you are, your relationship with that personal organization, what their interests are and, and developing, it's an iterative communication process from that point on. Mm. There are there are kind of guidelines, but there are certainly no kind of apply this and you will get this. That's not how communications works and certainly not how climate communications work. Mm. But avoid shame at all costs. Yes, uh, such, a, such a good one. And related to it, what is the one thing that you wish everyone in the world knew? Look, 
if I could if I could get if I could get one if everybody truly understood that there is a profound connection between the tree that I see outside my window and me, mm. that it's not an either or thing, that actually that we both survive if we're both, you know, that 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 in order to for me to survive, that tree needs to survive. If we if everybody had at least at some level an understanding of the interconnection we have to the natural world, then this would be a lot easier. Yeah. Um, when when you hear politicians say, oh, well, you know, we'd like to do more on climate change, but people matter more than trees or people matter more than fish or people matter more than animals. It's really lazy thinking because the reality is, is that, yes, if there was a burning fire and there was a cat and a person, I'd, I'd save the person and not the cat. But when you understand how the natural world works, reality is the natural world will continue after we die. We cannot live without the natural world. So if that's one thing I could get everybody to understand, that would be great. And the reality is, is that is an ethical, moral, it's not a question of education. If you go to places, you go to the Torres Strait, you go to the you know, Pac- you know, Pacific Island nations, you go to other places um, where conventional measures of education are not where they are in Australia broadly but they deeply understand that so they they and they and they understand that because they live it and if they happen to go into a classroom and learn it learn about climate change from a scientific context they immediately connect those two immediately connect it without having to go to university they get it and we've lost sight of it and we have to reconnect with it That's such an important one. And lastly, how can people follow you, find more of your work? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm not, I try and avoid getting to frights on Twitter because I don't think it's very useful. Um, my book is available as um, on Kindle, um, but I would encourage people if they can to order it through their local bookstore. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing, if you want to ask your local library to order it, so it's called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. But mm-hmm. basically Twitter is my medium. And even though Twitter can be really divisive, there's lots of fantastic voices on Twitter sharing amazing stories for, about climate action from around the world. So, yeah, feel free to follow me on Twitter and request your local library to order my book. Um, I just want it to be read. Um, you don't write books about climate change to make money, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yes. uh, that's such a good one. And, yes, uh, I would encourage everyone to, to go uh, and do that and to be able to, to continue the conversation around this topic. So thank you so much, Rebecca, for taking the time to to be here with us and to share what you're doing and for actually your work because all of this work is what ends up actually making a difference. And I always, I have this for me, even if I can have an impact on one person's life, exactly. that was really worthwhile. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you everyone that has been listening to this episode. I would love to know if there was anything that you heard that resonated with you or that you learned. Let us know in the comments when we share this episode. And until next time, bye. What did you like the most about this episode? Take a moment to think about what change you can make in your life today. 
Share your conscious action on social media using hashtag conscious action and tagging at conscious action and said so we can celebrate your impact on the world and create a ripple effect. One easy action we would love for you to take right now is to share, like and subscribe to this podcast. This will help us get these messages out into the world and inspire more people to take conscious action in their own lives, contributing to the better world we hope for.